One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello and welcome to The Real Story with me, Ritala Shah. This week we're looking at a topic that matters a lot, the rights of women in a country where those individual freedoms have hung in the balance for a long time. The country's Afghanistan and this week the United States said they agreed on a draft framework for peace with the Taliban. The deal centres around them promising not to harbour foreign terror groups in exchange for a peaceful withdrawal of Americans and other forces. It's a tentative breakthrough that comes after a bitterly fought conflict that's lasted for almost two decades and has cost thousands of lives. But the war in Afghanistan wasn't only about defeating the Taliban as a military force, it was also about defeating their ideology, especially their ultra-conservative attitude towards women. Today, Zora, an all-women orchestra based in Kabul, can rehearse and perform publicly, an illustration of some of the freedoms women now enjoy in many areas of Afghanistan. But there's anxiety that any peace process with the Taliban could mean a rolling back of gains like that made by women in the country. For today's programme, we brought together some amazing people who think a lot about this topic and whose lives or professions will be affected by whatever direction the process takes. We're going to hear from a remarkable woman who conducts that orchestra and will speak to the Taliban itself. I learnt a lot about the stakes involved and the daily struggles Afghan women face, and I think you will as well. My panel is Fauzia Kufi. She's in Geneva and is an independent member of the Afghan parliament. Kurmana Kakar, she's here in London with me. She's a peace activist and an academic at the LSE. And Dr Erin O'Connell in Austin, Texas, a former national security staffer in the Obama administration. He served in Afghanistan from 2010 to 2011 as a special advisor to General David Petraeus. Welcome to you all. I want to ask you to try and draw out some of the story of the past two decades where each of you were at the time of the US invasion. Fauzia Kufi. I was in Afghanistan. I lived all my life in Afghanistan. I was in Kabul when the US and other NATO troops came to Afghanistan. And I think uh, like many other women, we celebrated the liberty. Yes, Afghanistan was invaded. The foreign troops came as a country that always stood against the foreign troops. But at the end of the day, the fact that I could breathe without the fear of being beaten up by Taliban, that was an achievement for all the women. So it was a mo- moment of hope and of potential optimism. Kuramana Kakar, what, what about you? I was not living in Afghanistan at the time, but I frequently visited as a child Afghanistan. Your, your family I, left though, didn't uh, they? Yes, my family left during the just before the civil war broke up but I kept visiting Afghanistan while visiting my relatives who were still living in Afghanistan. And from that perspective of someone who clearly had very strong links to the country but was living outside it, how did you view that moment of the American invasion? Although I was a very young person at that time, like in my early years of college, that sense that we could finally go back to our country, which was a different country from that of the Taliban era or the Taliban regime. I mean, this sense of of having that liberty that I had outside my country and now in my country and, and be able to go and contribute to the development of Afghan society and rebuilding the country was very exciting and was like movements full of hope. Dr. Erin O'Connell? I was in the United States. I was a young captain in the Marine Corps, and I was watching President Bush on television. So you were watching it very much 
from the outside and seeing it as a military campaign that many people at the time believed would not necessarily last very long. Uh, yes, I think actually no one had any real idea how long it would last. We had concrete military objectives, but the geography and the complexity of uh, the Afghan landscape was surely on the minds of our leaders, as were the numerous times that uh, Westerners had tried to control Afghanistan in the past and failed. Let's spin back then to what it was like to be a woman in Afghanistan when the Taliban were in power. So this is the mid to late 90s up to 2001. Fazia Kufi, what was life like for you? I think the main thing as a woman that you could feel and sense and experience that women were reduced to invisible human being, basically. The torture, the killing, um, the fact that they were deprived of their basic rights that include um, from going to school, going to see a doctor, and above all, attacking the woman's dignity and identity. And something that's quite hard to imagine is the idea that many women more or less spent years without leaving their homes. Karamana, is that something that you were aware of from the experiences of friends and relatives? Definitely. I grew up hearing these stories and I was very much emotionally attached to these stories. As a child, I had seen, I have witnessed like very difficult times uh, being in Afghanistan and then leaving the country and living as a refugee in a neighboring country. But these stories were very striking and I actually grew up hearing them all the time until 2001. The cause of women in Afghanistan did become central to the justification for the US-led war. Let's listen to this broadcast from Laura Bush. She delivered the president's weekly radio address in November 2001, which was a first for a first lady. And the idea was to direct international attention to the Taliban's oppression of women. The people of Afghanistan, especially women, are rejoicing. Because of our recent military gains, in much of Afghanistan, women are no longer imprisoned in their homes. They can listen to music and teach their daughters without fear of punishment. Yet the terrorists who helped rule that country now plot and plan in many countries, and they must be stopped. The fight against terrorism is also a fight for the rights and dignity of women. Now, as First Lady, she made three trips to Afghanistan and for more than a decade, she led the efforts for Afghan women through what was called the US-Afghan Women's Council. The idea was to protect the rights of women in Afghanistan. But in a sense, uh, that mission, has it really been accomplished? How would you see that, Karamana? The mission to protect women's rights. I mean, after the US invasion of Afghanistan, women were liberated. I mean, they came out of their homes. They, the first thing that is very much um, impacting the whole society right now is their participation in building the constitution of the country. I mean, a lot of women participating in drafting the constitution, which provided a foundation for not only for Afghan women, but for the Afghan society to be treated equally, but to be able to participate in the nation building and state building efforts of the country. And the lead was with Afghan women, but a lot of support, back support from the international community through technical support, through financial support, and through political pressure on the Afghan government, as well as elements who would usually be opposing equal rights and their um, their position within the society. Fauzi Kufi, these big high-level efforts, clearly important. How do you think they've trickled down to everyday existence for Afghan women? 
I just gave an example of how it was the first day when I could walk in the streets of Kabul without being the fear that, you know, from here or there, Taliban might come with their wife and then beat me for not wearing the burqa. So the, from you start from there. Now, out of 11 million children that go to school, although the figures always contradict because we don't have a real database, they say 40% are girls. Now, uh, you know, if a girl was born during the first year of the U.S. invasion, she's 18 years old now. She is a woman who is educated. She finished her education in the school. She is grown up with this technology, with uh, connecting to the world and its opportunity. So I think these are examples. Uh, 25% uh, women in the parliament, a constitution which is very uh, democratic in the region. But the credit of all of this doesn't go to anybody except to the people well, of Afghanistan. Absolutely. Erin O'Connell, I, I wonder in a sense, whether the Americans' kind of women's rights became a convenient and rather positive after-effect of an inv- invasion that was launched primarily as an attack on terrorism. At what point did it become central? Yeah, I, I don't think it was an afterthought, but you're absolutely right that it was the purpose of the initial invasion was not to protect Afghanistan's women. It did become central, not only because it was rhetorically useful for the United States to advance an argument about liberating people, but also because a lot of U.S. programming, a lot of the dollars we spend in Reconstruction actually have legal requirements for their usages. And so active religious discrimination, active discrimination by gender is contrary to policy. We can't spend money that way. So once the Reconstruction began after the Taliban fell in December 2001, now a lot of the programming that showed up did have basic liberal goals of giving equal access to government services to people regardless of gender. And at that point, it it was central and has been a major part of the reconstruction effort ever since. So, Fazia, just to pick up on... If I, can be, just I do think it's important to separate something, though, that we've been talking about, which is we're talking about the international presence in Afghanistan. And these programs and dollars that protect women's rights are indeed programs and there's funding involved. But the U.S. troop presence, uh, I do not think, is germane to protecting Afghan women's rights. So, so perhaps we should talk about both sides of that at some point. Fazia. Yeah, I think I fully agree. There are a lot of um, human rights and uh, anti-war activists in the West who have the slogan of U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. I understand that there are anti-war movements that are against the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. I have actually written in 2014 a letter to my American sisters during the President Obama administration, and he actually quoted that letter that was published in one of the newspapers. I said that, you know, you're losing your, you're investing blood and treasure in Afghanistan, but with the cost of liberating and allowing human beings, majority of women, in that corner of the world going to school. So the two financial and military interventions were prerequisite for sustaining and kind of successing the American intervention when it comes to war on terror. Yes, there could be plenty of dollars, but if those interventions and programs were not protected from the military intervention of Taliban, then of course it will not long. We know that in many parts of Afghanistan, schools are being attacked by Taliban, female teachers are being attacked by Taliban. I was attacked many times by Taliban. And I'm a victim. So I think these are the two prerequisites. These are linked to each other's. I think it has to be a responsible. I'm using the term President Obama used, responsible withdrawal. So what you're saying is the rights of women, and this is absolutely what we want to talk about today, 
have to some extent been the, the growth of the rights of women has to some extent been absolutely dependent on that the presence of those foreign troops yes i guess if uh, yes i guess the lives were lost not only of americans but also of afghan soldiers and our young boys but with the cost of keeping a school open for girls to go to school okay let's let's hold that thought a really important one and talk about how much has changed. Let's be positive for a moment. Negin Kapalwak is 22. She's too young to remember life under the Taliban. And her life now shows how much opportunities for women have opened up in Afghanistan. Negin's a pianist and she's the first female orchestra conductor in Afghanistan. She guides an all-women group of musicians who play traditional Afghan as well as Western music. She told me, first of all, how she got into conducting. I joined uh, orchestra in 2015, but before I was choir member in that orchestra and I singing. And then my teacher said that you love conducting and try conducting. When I try, uh, it was a great feeling for me. And then after that, I decided that okay, I can do that. I will work hard and I can be a conductor. Is there a sense of power when you stand in front of the orchestra like that? Yes, when I stand and when I conduct the orchestra, I was so happy and so excited and I was feeling like a superwoman, like that now I'm a leader. So it was really a great moment for me. And the orchestra's performed abroad. I think you've performed at Davos in Switzerland. But can you perform in Afghanistan? Yes, we are performing in Afghanistan too, but just in Kabul, not in other provinces, because uh, it is a little bit dangerous and uh, the security problems. So we hope that we can do that. And it is my big wish that we can do a concert in provinces. But in Kabul, we have an academy, a winter academy. So the outside students like from Herat, from Bamiyan, they're coming and they're studying music with us for two months. And then we all together, we give a big concert to the people. Do you think that there are people who disapprove of girls performing music who still think that you shouldn't be doing this? Yes, some people, like not uh, many people, but the people that they didn't educate and they didn't study. So they're thinking that, that still music is bad. You are doing wrong thing because you are a girl and you are Muslim. Why you are doing music? And I'm saying that I'm not doing a bad thing, but it's just music. It is art. So I love it and I want to do that. But we hope uh, one day everybody support us. You're probably too young to remember the time when the Taliban was in power in Afghanistan, but women were very restricted then. Does that worry you as they come back into the mainstream of political life? I am thinking positive, but yes, we were very because if again their Taliban regime is come, we cannot play music. So it will be so hard for us. So what would you say to the people who are are conducting these talks? What would your message be? My message is that they should think about their family, why every human should be crying, why there will be a father die, a mother die, why they're not together with us, with our government, to make our country beautiful, to make a family happy. So I'm just saying, please come to peace and please make everybody happy. 
A plea there from Negin Kapalwak in Kabul. Karamana, we've talked about how the battle against the Taliban by both foreign and Afghan forces has underpinned the growing rights of women. You've talked about the importance of the Afghan constitution and, in a sense, really writing those things down, pinning them down. But how much would you say the progress of women has been exaggerated in the rural parts of the country and in perhaps in the wider public's mind? Well, I mean, the life for Afghan women is totally different from that of the Taliban era. Afghan society as a whole, and particularly Afghan women, have come a long way since 2001. Women have enormous achievements. Their contributions to the society are enormous in every field of life, but, of their homes. But would you make those distinctions between the experience of those in urban areas and those in rural areas? Sure. There is clear distinction between the lives of women in the urban areas and the rural areas. Women in some regions in the country which are still insecure, where where there is still insurgency going on. I mean, a lot of those women still did not have the opportunity to come out of their homes, to go to school, to get access to basic uh, services such as health and a shelter and proper food and clean water. So the problems are still there. I mean, the situation for all women throughout the country is not the same. And, and Fauzia, it's interesting because Negin there is, is performing. She's conducting, she's playing the piano. There is a public aspect to that. I wonder how broadly public perceptions of women have changed. Again, is this urban-rural distinction a crucial one? Well, first of all, I'm very proud of our Afghan music team. Uh, They make us proud internationally, but also nationally. But to be honest, the priority when the Taliban were thrown out of power uh, for many of us was not just to listen to music, which was something uh, banned during Taliban. The priority was the basic, basic rights. And it is still the basic rights. Now, um, And I guess what I'm asking is, we can talk about basic rights. Some people have them. But how widely are those perceived and respected? Um, one of the major and invisible, perhaps, achievements that we have achieved in Afghanistan is this societal transformation that has occurred in the past 18 years, and it's not visible. It's not a building that you see and you measure based on the amount of dollar the international community spent, but it's the transformation of generation. And that transformation of generation, luckily, is happening regardless of rural or urban Afghanistan. Yes, when it comes to social development, when it comes to social services, when it comes to accessibility, there is a disparity, huge disparity between women who are living in the rural areas. They are deprived of uh, social services, including quality health services, etc. And that's why Afghanistan still has the highest number of maternal mortality. But when it comes to transformation, if you ask a woman, even in the rural, rural area, that uh, she has never seen a car in her life, never driven a car in her life. She wants her daughter to go to school. I have seen many villages. The elders, the villagers come to me as the representative asking them to help build a school. So that's a generational transformation. And I think no government, including the Taliban government, will actually be able to take that generation back to scratch. But This is something we have to understand. I'm going to be a bit negative here and throw some cold water onto all of this, Grimana. I'm going to ask you to, in a sense, do a sort of reality check because you can still be jailed for the moral crime of fleeing your abusive husband in Afghanistan. You may well be denied an education, but there are high levels of violence against women. So many people looking from the outside would say, well, how much progress is there really? 
Well, I mean, laws are in place, institutions have been built, but implementation of law and order has been an issue in Afghanistan. And I mean, if you talk about some years ago, for example, 20 years ago or 18 years ago, I mean, talking about domestic abuse, I mean, nobody would talk about it. But today people are talking about it. Today, cases are being registered, domestic abuse cases or any other cases that would come from women who have been abused by their families or communities, for instance, or who have been targeted. This is a progress, but there's still a long way to go. But just coming back to the previous question, the rural and the urban divide, there is another division. I mean, there are areas under continuous attack where women and people are still thinking and longing for the basic survival. They are being killed every day. So we can definitely not count them within the whole general spectrum of the Afghan society where we say that women do play a role when they don't have the space, not only physical, but also mental space to think beyond the issues of survival, then we should not be expecting that that everything is happening similarly. So Erin O'Connell, to come back, if you like, to that urban official space that you may well have occupied when you were in Afghanistan, what we've just heard is that progress to some extent is undeniable once you give women education and rights it's very hard to to claw that back but from your experience when you were working in Kabul in an official capacity how many women did you come into contact with uh yes very few but that shouldn't be taken as a measure of much because as a military officer most of my uh, interactions were with Afghan military there are women but I I didn't spend much time with them um I think the key point is this. There's been undeniable success in improving women's rights and lives, not just three to four million girls in school, but deaths during childbirth are now a quarter of what they were under Taliban rule. That's a real change. Maternal health has improved radically. That's a real change. The question going forward is how much is the international presence essential for consolidating and safeguarding those gains? Now, a number of people argue that the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan is perpetuating the war. It is the Taliban's number one precondition for negotiating is that the foreign forces withdraw. So if you believe that the foreign forces are an essential backstop for the Afghan army and police, then you'd want to keep them there to guarantee the rights and protect women and men from Taliban attacks. If, on the other hand, you think that the military presence is effectively fuel on the fire, it is encouraging the Taliban, well, then you'd have a different argument about how essential the 16,000 U.S. troops are to safeguarding women's rights. And that's something I'd like to talk about much more in the next half hour. Erin O'Connell, Kurumana Kakar and Fauzia Kufi, thank you very much for now. We have to take a short break. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. And this week, we're looking at the future of women in Afghanistan. Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. There are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at our address, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. This week, we're looking at the future for women in Afghanistan. Peace talks between the US and the Taliban appear to be making progress. And if they succeed, foreign troops would withdraw from the country. So what would that mean for women's rights? Dramatically curbed when the Taliban were in power, 
hard-won in the intervening decades and easily snatched away again, should the balance of power shift once more. Well, we're joined to discuss all that by the independent Afghan MP, Fauzia Kufi. She's chair of the Human Rights and Women's Rights Committee. By Kuramana Kakar, she's an academic and peace activist, currently a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics. And Dr Erin O'Connell, who's a history professor at the University of Texas in Austin. He served for 22 years in the US military, including a spell in Afghanistan. Now, earlier in the programme, we talked about life in Afghanistan for women under the Taliban and how things have changed. Let's now discuss the peace efforts that are underway and what they might mean for Afghan women in the future. This week, we learned that the US and Taliban negotiators have agreed on what's called a draft framework for a peace deal. There isn't much detail about this framework, but what we know is that the Trump administration is exploring a full withdrawal of US troops in return for a ceasefire and a commitment by the Taliban to these direct talks. And the Taliban would promise to prevent Afghanistan being used as a hub for international jihadi groups like so-called Islamic State and al-Qaeda. The Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, has made a new call for direct talks with the Taliban, but they have so far refused. Now, on that basis, I know none of us know that much more. Does any of this sound promising? Erin O'Connell. Yes, it sounds promising, but we shouldn't get our hopes up yet. None of this will work if the Ghani administration rejects it. And there's a presidential election coming up in July. So his political space for maneuver is is deeply limited. I should also say not everybody thinks this is even positive. We've been talking to the Taliban since about 2011, but things have always broken down over two specific points. The Taliban said, we'll negotiate only one-on-one with the U.S., and we must talk about troop withdrawals first. And the U.S. always rejected those two preconditions. The Trump administration has accepted those preconditions, and that has led some, including the former ambassador to Afghanistan, Ryan Crocker, calling the deal, even in its earliest forms, a complete surrender. Well, this is the process, the peace process has been going on for long, and the current peace talks are rising hopes among Afghan people generally, but at the same time creates more confusion because we don't know what else is being discussed beyond the U.S. troops' withdrawal. There seem to be other demands by the Taliban as well, such as the interim government, releasing of prisoners, and issues like that. If the purpose of this particular peace talks is to cease fire and then enter into a long-term peace negotiations with the Afghan government, it seems like a stage within a peace process because peace in itself doesn't come within a day or within a few days or weeks. Peace has to come in different stages and it has different levels and there are different approaches to each stage and level. This could be taken as one of the milestones there are no women, as far as we know, on this peace team. And these are direct talks between the US and the Taliban. Does that concern you? There is not only no woman, but there is also no man from Afghanistan's mm-hmm. side. I think what makes the current situation different is that there is a desire and almost a consensus for peace as a priority in Afghanistan, because we have had enough of war for 40 years. We lost our life, our husbands, children, uh, members of family during the war, and it affected also our progress, our education, etc. Now, I think people are equally not happy with the current Afghan administration too, because we have, as Aaron was saying, we have presidential election in July, and the politicians try to use the peace process for their interest and as a credit for their campaign. Therefore, I think it should be completely 
a people-led process, and especially women. I would like to quote a woman in Afghanistan who told me three days ago when I was in Kabul, she told me, it's like Afghan women are being thrown to the wolves. You know, if we are not part of the process, if we don't know what is going to happen post the agreement of uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, of course there is a great amount of uncertainty and concern. Let's, I think let's, the international let's community about, Let's has talk about that some more, because we got through to Zabihullah Mujahid. He's the main spokesman for the Taliban. Let's hear from him. In the name of Allah, the most gracious and the most merciful. Previously, our contacts did pave the way for talks. However, this time, our meeting was about the main issues in Afghanistan. First is an end to the invasion. All foreign forces should leave Afghanistan because Afghanistan is a sovereign state. And there is no justification for their existence here. And the second being the future of an Islamic government for the Afghans. They have made heavy sacrifices for it. That government has to be sustainable and stable. These are our two objectives. What in return, though, can the Afghan government and the international community expect from the Taliban? What guarantees can you give that you will desist from violence? As I said, we have two objectives, which are an end to the invasion and a stable Islamic government. If the issues of invasion is solved and an agreement is reached with Afghans, perhaps we may no longer have a need for fighting. However, you know that this government in Kabul was planted by the Americans. It's not a government about which we can issue any guarantee. But that's answering what the Taliban wants. I'm asking, what is the Taliban offering in return? What guarantees can you give that you will stop the violence? Why should anyone believe what what the Taliban says after all these years of conflict? In the past, for example, at the end of the Soviet occupation, war restarted. That was because the ranks of the then victors had deep conflicting interests. But now it is different. For those who are fighting now are struggling for freedom. They have a single command. This is not seen as a civil war. However, if we realize that the issue of Afghanistan is getting more complicated or moving towards another crisis, then we will turn to the different groups within Afghanistan, such as the scholars and the elders. We want to reach an understanding with them. But I need to mention one thing, which is we do not recognize the setup in Kabul as a government. They are not worthy of our engagement. So just to be clear then, President Ghani, I know, has appealed to the Taliban on a number of occasions to to hold talks. You are not prepared to talk with him or with this Afghan government. Well, you know that the Kabul government is one made by the Americans. As they invaded our country, they also fiddled with our political process, creating a system that I can't be part of. If we enter negotiations with the Kabul administration, it would mean that the current regime will have legitimacy and be acceptable. If this happens, it would mean that our 18 years of struggle was wrong. This has legal and religious implications that we can't bypass. 
So you don't recognise this government as the official government of Afghanistan? That's right. When you talk about the creation of an Islamic country for Afghans, what do you imagine? Describe that. A government has its own definition of Islamic laws. We will consider those principles and make an Islamic government. In an Islamic government, Islamic laws should be respected. All commandments should be implemented according to Sharia law. It's a very long process and an expert-led debate. But in general, I can say that we will create it according to the Islamic commandments, God willing. Will, will women be able to take a, a full part in, that, in the life of that country? Yes, of course. Islamic laws have their own guidance for women. Women will be allowed to be active and be outside their homes, play their part in the fields of medicine, education and other aspects of social life. That already sounds like the rights of women may be restricted. In the areas of Afghanistan that are currently under Taliban control, we're already seeing that older girls aren't allowed to go to secondary schools, women aren't allowed to go out without a male chaperone, there are restrictions on men's appearance, they must grow their beards and wear shalwa kameez and so on. Is it likely then if the Taliban were to return to power, those restrictions would apply across Afghanistan and particularly those restrictions on women? The countryside itself doesn't have these opportunities for women. And the debate over Sharia is different. When women leave their homes, they should wear hijab and not be the cause of any mischief in society. But of course, they should pursue their needs. In the countryside, women don't go to the city center, for example, because there are no cities. There are villages. Similarly, the reason they can't continue their education beyond primary school is because we don't have girl-only schools for them, and we lack female teachers for them. So in the countryside, the issue is one of logistics and not of ideology. From what you are saying then, women's rights, if there were to be a Taliban government, women's rights would be much more restricted than they are now and they wouldn't be allowed to take part in public life in the way that they are able to do at the moment. I must mention that Sharia has its own rules, but women will have their participation, especially in the field of medicine and education and other walks of life where they will have their activities and they will be supported too. In the past, there were shortcomings in our government because we lacked resources. So women will be active within that context and it's the responsibility of the government to make that possible. That's uh, the Taliban spokesman Zabehullah Mujahid. Aaron O'Connell, before we get into what that interview may reveal about the future for women, let's establish the strength of the Taliban now. How big is their presence in Afghanistan? Well, there's different estimates. They range from about 30,000 to 70,000, but that's not a useful measure for evaluating their military capabilities. The bottom line is that they can continue to attack civilians and attack government facilities, and we couldn't stop that when we had 100,000 U.S. troops in the country, and we certainly can't stop it with 16,000 troops. But geographically, there are parts of the country that they are in control of. 
Correct. I think it's about 50 to 55 percent of the country is under government control. The Taliban directly controls something on the order of 15 to 20, and the rest are contested. This is a, a greater amount of Taliban geographic coverage than at any point previous to 2001. So they, they are definitely on the rise, and the government's ability to control the entire country is declining. But it is important to note where they have control. About 73% of the country is rural, but the provincial centers and the cities are under government influence, and there the facilities and the programs for women are functioning in a rather safe and sustainable way. So Fazia, to pick up, a very clear picture from that interview that as far as the Taliban are concerned, women's rights will be determined by religious factors and, and sharia. What does that say to you? I'm surprised to hear the spokesperson of Taliban say they don't want to talk with the Afghan government. I must say, I'm one of the opposition, but we are talking about Afghan state. So they are not able to or they are not ready to talk with a state that they have problem with, government that they have problem with, with a claim that this is a puppet government and being fabricated by Americans, but they can talk to the Americans directly. Of course, it contradicts the Taliban position. Therefore, I think it's important for Taliban to get engaged with the people of Afghanistan I have lived all my life in Afghanistan, including during the Taliban time. And this term of Islamic State, Islamic rights of women, I have been hearing, and that's why we are concerned. I think there are certain things that should be regarded as non-negotiable items when it comes to direct talks between people of Afghanistan and Taliban. One of the things that should not be negotiated is women's rights, because, as I said before, it is a societal change. It's a mentality. It's a behavior change. And this is something Taliban will face. Resilience, the civil rights of people, the freedom of speech. Taliban, during their time, opposed having media. They have to talk with people of Afghanistan and agree to some of those disagreements. Karamana Kakar, presumably you share some of those concerns. Well, sure, of course. They're not only fighting against the U.S. forces in Afghanistan. It's also the Afghan government that they're fighting against. So the only sustainable peace or the only inclusive peace negotiations or peace process will only happen once the Afghan government as well as the Afghan people are involved. I mean, whatever is happening between the U.S. Special Envoy and the Taliban could be something that relates to them as parties, but that does not include the perceptions or the agreements or the ideas from the Afghan government or Afghan people themselves. And the inclusion of women is really important at this stage, not only in the negotiations, but also in the whole peace process from negotiations to the implementation of the peace. So Erin O'Connell, these are very early days, but do you feel confident that the US government will insist on human rights guarantees, guarantees of the rights of women in any kind of peace framework that ultimately evolves? Uh, I do not feel confident. It is possible, and indeed, separate from any guarantees in documents signed by all sides, there are protections that are written into some of the funding mechanisms we have. Presumably, should the war end and U.S. military forces leave, there will still be U.S. development assistance and reconstruction in Afghanistan. And there we do have the ability to put conditions on how we fund the Afghan government, even if the Taliban is a part of it. So that would put people in the position of choosing. Do we want to capitulate to the what we'll call the religious extreme position of the Taliban and lose all U.S. funding? Or would we like to have the funding and therefore we need to find a political solution to the Taliban's strong resistance to including women fully in the society? But, but you're uncertain. You're saying there are these protections in the way funding 
comes through, but you seem uncertain of the, just the, the clear idea that women's rights will be protected. They could, on some level, end up being traded for the departure of foreign troops, of US troops in particular. Well, let's be clear. We, the Afghan army and police and the U.S. forces supporting them, aren't protecting all women in Afghanistan now. There are large portions of the country where we have no control whatsoever. I think I'm skeptical for two reasons. One, I don't see a direct way that the U.S. can compel through negotiations how the Afghan men will treat Afghan women. But the second reason I'm skeptical is there is a long history of Afghans rising up in violent opposition when outsiders or urban modernizers try to change the gender relations in the country. In the 1920s, Amanullah, the leader, the emir, tried to enact a series of reforms around women, enforcing monogamy, raising the marriage age, allowing education. That produced a revolt in Coast in 1925 and a full-blown civil war, and he had to leave the country. Okay. And the same thing happened 50 years later. Fazi, that, Kufi, so it's I a very hard thing to get into the gender relations between Afghans Fazi, uh, Kufi, from I, the outside. I can bring you in. You were talking at the beginning about how you see the interaction between the battle that we've seen over the last two decades and women's rights as being quite important. What do you make of what you've just heard? I agree. We don't expect the international community to clarify some of the complex cultural norms that were set in Afghanistan, some of them linked to Islam. I think there is a misinterpretation and there is this tradition in Afghanistan that if, you know, women are liberated, then man will lose power. I agree and I don't expect the American troops to define that relationship in Afghanistan. I can confirm that the changes that have occurred on the past 18 years or not only a top-bottom approach, but a bottom-up approach. You go to the villages of Afghanistan, and I gave example. My father was a member of parliament. He established the first school in our village, but he never allowed his own daughters to go to school. But from the same village, many people come to me asking for a school for their girls, and I ask them, why do you want a school for your girl? The answer was, if my daughter wants to be like some of you who are active in the society, I would be very proud. So by producing role models in the society, I think the perspective have changed. I understand it's not a general situation. In the areas and provinces where there is more security problems, more attack by Taliban, perhaps the situation might be different. But generally speaking, I think the society has progressed. There is this part of Afghanistan that has transformed, and the international community has a moral obligation to support it, not to compromise it, over political settlement. That's what we basically ask. We don't want double standards. Kurumana Kakar, do you feel confident that you can make that idea, make that plea be heard? I totally agree with what my friends say here. I mean, aid conditionality has been problematic in Afghanistan. It was not successful in many contexts, whether there was development, human rights or women's rights, because a lot of these cultural related issues would push the international donors to change those conditions. And then the U.S. is not the only country who would be working with Afghans. Unfortunately, the Taliban is not just an independent group. It's been supported by the neighboring countries and by the region. I mean, they will still have that influence on the Taliban. So if they're, for example, if they don't accept the conditionality of aid or money or financial resources, there are others who can support them, at least in areas where they will have strong control. So, I mean, increasing spaces for women and younger people, younger educated people, would be the only way to bring that change within the Afghan society. So it's not that we should be depending on the international community to be able to help us to change the mentalities, but it's more about education. It's more about 
a safe spaces for people to come together to think beyond the survival issues or beyond the issues of security as well as the dirty politics that's happening at the very grassroots level. So Felsia, here's an idea that may annoy you actually, but it may help in a sense to give a measurement to people who are listening. Is it likely, is it possible that a version of Islam similar to that in Saudi Arabia might end up dictating the role and rights of women in Afghanistan? You know, we have to keep in mind that Afghanistan has traditionally been an open society. We have our own way of democracy, but there has always been jergas and shoras and participation of people in the local government, participation of women. Traditionally, there has been a sense of protection to women. Yes, the society has not progressed. We had history, which uh, Aaron mentioned some of it. But we don't want extreme. We don't want extreme of Taliban regime and we don't want extreme of too progressive that is not realistic with the ground realities of Afghanistan. So we want a middle ground. Also, in some cases, we overestimate Taliban power. There are other violent extremist groups that perhaps might not join with political settlement with Taliban. There are ISIS, there is at least 25 terroristic groups that are in the region. 18 are functional in Afghanistan. So by making a political settlement, then what do you do with other violent extremist groups that have created troubles in different parts of the country? So therefore, I think we have to find ways to engage in a sustainable way, not only to protect women's rights, because women's rights is an example of freedom in Afghanistan, but also to engage the society, because if there is no truth and reconciliation, it will not be a peace process. I agree with Ambassador Ryan Crocker that it will be surrendering Afghanistan to this kind of ideology. And Erin O'Connell, that point that Fauzia makes about the Taliban are by no means the only group in the region, in the country that could make trouble. This is a really important point. It is an important point. I think the larger question surrounding our whole conversation here is that we want two things that might be incompatible. We want an army and a police strong enough to enforce rule of law, to stop the acid attacks, to protect the basic rights of women. However, the U.S. has always maintained that its foreign troop presence, the trainers, the NATO trainers and all international trainers, are essential for making that Afghan army and police functional. So as long as those troops are there, the Taliban has a rather compelling narrative of engaging in a mission to eject foreign invaders, and that keeps the war going. So the real question is... How can we continue to protect rule of law in Afghanistan while perhaps drawing down some or all of the foreign troops that are, in a sense, pouring fire on the flames of the conflict? Fazia? Yeah, I just wanted to say that, or perhaps clarify my position. What I'm trying to say is not in favor of keeping foreign military forces in Afghanistan. The message that the U.S. withdrawal could give is a position of power to Taliban, as a result of which we may lose some of the gains we have had in the past 18 years above all the the women rights. So the message we gave is very much important, not the the actual presence in Afghanistan. Yes, uh, eventually we have to stand on our feet and we have to be able to protect our soil. But right now there are so many conflicting interests in the region. Taliban also have their foreign links and their Yeah, I mean, just quickly, we don't know the specifications of the troops withdrawal yet. I mean, we don't know whether this is the combat troops withdrawal or is it a complete troops withdrawal, including the trainers and other support based uh, troops. We're far from those kind of details. Yeah. Uh, So just to wrap up then, 
given the experience of the last two decades and given actually what you've all been talking about in the last few minutes, what is a realistic vision for women's rights in Afghanistan, assuming that the future is likely to include some kind of official space for the Taliban? Karamana. Given the achievements of women, I mean, given that they have come a long way since 2001, given that they hold a strong position within the Afghan society right now, they are very visible and vocal. They participate equally with men in many processes and many highly technical and difficult processes. This should give us a hope that at least the achievements that we have had so far would not be derailed. But it does not necessarily mean that we should not worry about the future. We should be a bit more proactive. We should occupy more social and political spaces to ensure that whatever comes next, we are ready to show our presence, but also participate in constructive processes and mechanisms. So no complacency, Erin O'Connell. I would defer to my Afghan colleagues on what a reasonable prediction is for a peace deal or for the rights of women in Afghanistan. I think the best thing I can contribute from the U.S. side is to note that we can untangle the military relationship between our two countries, but not if we do it in ways that are rushed, impatient, and which surprise both our allies and the Afghans. And that's what we've been seeing so far. So if that continues, then I think any chance of a peace deal will go out the window. Fazia Kufi? I think we should not forget that the terrorist groups, including the Haqqani networks, uh, the biggest allies with Al-Qaeda, strongly ally also with Taliban, um, kill thousands of people in Afghanistan, continue to kill everybody every day, um, innocent people in Afghanistan, and also the U.S. and other countries' troops in Afghanistan. So I think I once again would like to state that I agree with the peace settlement. But that peace settlement should be with justice, inclusivity, okay. and above all, a long-standing sustainability. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Fazia Kufi, Kurumana Kakar and Dr. Erin O'Connell, thank you very much to all of you. From me and the whole team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.